Everybody, this is Joshua Hatton with One Nation Under Whiskey Podcast. I'm joined today, and I'm joined as always with my good friend, my business partner. Um, I used the term mate last time, which you know, in sort of the natural world, means something completely different. That is true. Gosh, that never even crossed my mind that that was a suggestion. Yeah, yeah. for me, mate's just buddy. Yeah, good friend. Yeah, good lad. Yeah, there you go. Well, I'm glad that you're joined with me today and as always. <laughs> okay, now you've taken it to another place. <laughs> well, it'd be weird doing this alone, you know, as I'm sure it'd be weird for you doing it alone. Not only would the recording be quite bad, the editing would be even worse. <laughs> so, yeah, I would not have a successful whiskey podcast alone. If someone does a podcast alone, is that like... Uh-huh podcast masturbation oh gosh that went fast <laughs> it's just <laughs> speaking of went fast there okay there you go we should see my recording equipment fell over as yeah. opposed to anything else <laughs> oh boy okay maybe too much maybe too much energy to start this round so, so i don't know what to do it's like <sighs> i can't do low energy i can't do high energy it's got to be somewhere in between it's like I keep saying to my kids, find the Goldilocks solution. Come on. Just All get it right, right in the middle. Just right. Just right. <laughs> okay. You and I, Jason. Yes, sir. Have been preparing for the episode that we're, we are recording since October of last year. And this is really only part one of this sort of series we want to do. Do you want to talk about what our aim is with this episode and with uh, an episode in the not too distant future? Absolutely. Yes. This is our attempt at a bar episode. Mm -hmm. You and I both professionally and in an amateur setting spend a lot of time in bars, Mm -hmm. uh, talking to bar owners, uh, uh, discussing product with bar owners and drinking with friends. Yeah. So we thought it'd be a good idea to focus on that part of the industry. I actually recorded with Grombeck in Fremont, uh, North Seattle, back last September, actually. So September of 2018. Yeah. And then uh, Aaron Zacharias, mm-hmm. you spoke with him at the Chicago Jubilee, which would have been last October. Do you know what? I'm going to be very honest with you. This conversation that I had with Aaron Zacharias was not 2018. It was oh 2017. <laughs> we just, and, and that's when we had the idea, you know, let, let's, <laughs> let's start collecting interviews of, of good bar people, of good bar owners. And Aaron was my very first interview, and that was in 2017. Okay, well, it'll be perfect then because we will begin the episode with Aaron since he's been so patient on this coming to air. (laughs) (laughs) But it was at at a Chicago Jubilee, that is what I heard? Yes, because we always had... The noise in the background? Obviously the noise in the background and and I think from day one we've had both Fountainhead and Delilah's at the Jubilee representing everything that they do. Yeah, yeah, certainly at yeah. the Chicago Jubilee. Yeah, yeah Never come yeah. to New York or Seattle. Yeah, yeah. no, no, no. Uh, no, that wouldn't make and, sense. Uh, 
And Gronbeck, to his credit, was a, a terrific uh, help. I wanted to say assistance, but I don't think that sounds right at all. So I just went with the simpler help. He <laughs> he, he helped us set up beer relationships for pouring. That's right. And he right. helped us staff the tables with volunteers as well. And of course, he was a great sounding board for brands mm-hmm. uh, and venues. So yeah, Grombeck has been a terrific supporter of Jubilee and also Single Cast Nation, as you'll hear much later in this episode uh, when we talk about Single Cast Nation just a little bit. Yeah, when when it comes to Seattle, there's there's two people that come straight to mind that have always been a help. You've got Christopher Gronbeck of Barrel Thief and Jamie Buckman of Edrington, mm-hmm. right? And in Chicago... We've always had Mike Miller, Delilah's. We've always had Aaron Zacharias of Fountainhead, Gene from Warehouse, Brett from Benny's. You know, all these people have been huge supporters, whether it's at the festival itself or in preparation of the festival to make sure it was a success. Yeah, and I I would add in on the Seattle side one more person uh, who's actually a former bar owner, which might be worthy of of a future episode, mm-hmm. is Andrew Friedman, formerly of, of course. Liberty. Oh, of course. And he's been a great supporter of ours from the very beginning and somebody who I always try to see when I'm in Seattle. That's become increasingly more difficult. Yeah. But yeah, I didn't want Andrew's name to get left out just <laughs> as we were listing that. That was my pause when you said Jamie Buckman. Not that I disagree with you one little bit about Jamie. Mm. She's been a tremendous supporter of ours and also has a great time running Women Who Love Whiskey. I just expected the name Andrew Friedman to come out of your mouth when you said Jamie Buckman. And, and you know what? His name should have come out of my mouth because I'm currently sipping on some mezcal. And, <laughs> that's right. And that's I, why he's to the forefront of our <laughs> mind as well, yeah. I would not know anything about mezcal if it weren't for him. So, uh, so Andrew Friedman, for certain. And now to shed a little bit of light on what you were saying there about this being the first part of this type of episode that we want to release. You, dear listener, might be surprised that we don't hear from Bill Thomas in this interview, very simply because we want to devote an entire later episode to Bill Thomas. Who's Bill Thomas? The celebrated (laughs) owner-operator, Jack Rose Dining Saloon in Washington, D.C. Yeah, 100%. And the only reason why I said it like that in a cheeky way is... You know, we've got a lot of listeners around the U.S. and in the U.K. and Australia and South Africa. We have people in China and Mexico who listen to us as well and a few other in, you know, some European countries. And while they may not know Bill Thomas's name, there's no doubt they know Jack Rose. Uh, I think you're correct, sir. And I think it's always worth remembering that I am... I'm literally two hours away from Jack Rose Dining Saloon, and so yeah. it's it's easy for me to to create these shortcuts. But yeah, for global listeners, it's always worthwhile reminding. So so yeah, we'll we'll definitely have Bill Thomas of Jack Rose Dining Saloon in, in a full later episode, and uh, and the three gentlemen that that spent mm. time with us for this episode, as always, is very much appreciated. Yeah. All three of them are busy, busy chaps, and I'm excited to delve into this episode and hear what they've got to say. Well, let me hear what you have to say really quickly. I'm curious to know why you felt, just as I did, why you felt it's important to highlight the bar aspect 
of the whiskey industry. What about it is worth focusing on for you? This is good. That's a that's a very good question. Let me be a hundred percent honest here, and, and I don't think the best words are going to come out of my mouth here. Mm-hmm. But when we are working and we are selling bottles, cases, multiple cases, mm-hmm. when you work with a distributor and when you work with a retailer, you talk in quantities that are much larger than when you talk with what's called the on-premise, the restaurants, the bars. Sure. And there's a number of people in the industry who would much rather be selling directly to these distributors and directly to these off-premise, these retailers, mm-hmm. because the numbers are there. Sure. And, and one of the things that I've come to realize in dealing with the on-premise, the restaurants and bars, is yes, you might only sell them one bottle of your product. But they, if they like it, and we've been very fortunate that Single Cast Nation has been very well liked, if they like it, they will hand sell your brand to many, 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 many people mm. who will then go out into retail stores. Yeah. Or, or, you know, for one part of our business, come online and look at our web store. But it's that passion that you see in the bar scene. Mm -hmm. It's that community that you see in the bar scene that really helps us sell larger quantities into retail, that helps us establish really wonderful working relationships Mm -hmm. with distributors. And I think in the industry, there are some people who continue to miss that relationship. So are you suggesting that that bar owners, restaurateurs with a, a focus on a whiskey bar are perhaps the original influencers as opposed to the Instagrammers of the world? These are the people that actually influence the consumer. Well, think about you know, you and I have A, done the recordings and B, listened to the raw audio of one another's interviews. But think about what we're going to hear in today's episode yeah. with this conversation about communities and consumers who go into bars who have relationships with Mike and Christopher and mm-hmm. Aaron and their bar staff. Yeah. And when those members of the bar say, here, try this. There's such a a strong relationship there uh, and there's such a strong trust there that, yes, as a consumer, you say, yeah, give me give me a shot of it. Let me try it. Give me an ounce. Give me a half ounce. Let let me taste that. And so, yeah, I think influencer has, has come to mean something of its own with the social media world. Mm. But, yeah, if, if you want to attach that term to somebody who really did influence drinking patterns, who really did help to promote sales in retail stores, yeah, I think that's absolutely uh, a, a very worthwhile relationship. Yeah. And as you'll hear later in the episode, in talking to Gronbeck, it, it's a two-way street. Mm. It's also consumers who go into his bar saying, hey, have you heard of X? Have yeah. you tried yeah. Y? Yeah. Yeah. You need to bring this in. And he listens to that. And I'm, I'm sure Mike and Aaron both do that as well. And so, yeah, I, I think the bar is incredibly important for us. 
mm-hmm. um, as, as I mentioned previously, as as professionals and as amateurs. Yeah, it's a wonderful place to go hang out. When you and I go to Glasgow, where do we meet people? The Bonnet. The Bon. Yep. Right. It's it's the natural meeting place. We have you know sometimes a half and a half, a, a half pint and a shot of whiskey. Sometimes it's just whiskey. Sometimes it's just beers. Mm-hmm. But it's it's that natural meeting place. And I know that all of our listeners have got bars that they frequent. Yeah. That that yep. they think is is worth their time, worth their money. And so, well, yeah, I think I think they're hugely important. Yeah. Sometimes, Jason, you want to go where everybody knows your name. It is and true. They're always glad you came. Yeah, so you, know. you just have to take a break from the world around you. Taking a break from everything takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your troubles. Troubles, that's it. <laughs> it's so funny. We're both just starting at the beginning of that song and working our way through it. Okay, did, what would the next line be if I was to quote it? Did I tell you that my dad went to university with uh, John Ratzenberger? You did not. Yeah, they were in film class together, and they did a uh, a film project while in university. So somewhere out there is a film <laughs> with my dad and uh, Cliff from Cheers. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. And now how do we pivot back to whiskey? <laughs> <laughs> so, Okay. Let's yeah. Let us let us pivot back to whiskey. Um, well, so here's here's yeah, something for me. Okay, I, I, I think this is a is a natural meeting point. We're seeing more and more retailers putting out their own barrel picks, mm. and we are independent bottlers, and we put out our barrel picks, which we sell to retailers. Yeah, and we sell to bars. Retailers have got their store barrel picks. Not a lot of those are going into bars. A lot of them go to private individuals, private Mm -hmm. consumers. Mm -hmm. But we also see bars making their own barrel picks. Yeah, many bars do it. Not not just, you know, let me, I just want to put a pin in that really quickly. Because you had said something before. You'd said, you know. Speech balloon has been popped. (laughs) Listeners, if you're wondering why. Uh, Bill Thomas of Jack Rose is not on this episode. It's because we are dedicating another episode to him. But but here's the thing. There are countless great bars that, that I think we will want to focus on. Uh, oh, yeah. you, right? You've got Seven Grand. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. For All sure. All four outposts of Seven All Grand. All four outposts. You've got bars like uh, the Franklin Room and Longman and Eagle. Also, both in Chicago, you've got the Flatiron Room in New York. That's one I was going to say. Brandy Library, Copper and Oak, the Caledonian, all of these, and that is just touching the surface. There are a lot of great bars, and this is only in the U.S. We're talking about. Yep. But but the reason why I brought that up was as you're talking about people doing their own single cask picks. I remember Longman and Eagle have done plenty of their own picks they've had some some stellar willets that they've done and and of course jack rose has done picks and and you'll hear mike miller talking about his collaborative kilhoman pick exactly right delilah's and and jack rose so as you were talking about that longman and eagle popped into my mind which reminded me oh wait a second there could be 
two bar episodes, three bar episodes, four oh, bar oh, episodes, yeah. oh, right? Yes. Where yeah, they they won't be listed as you know standalone episodes. They'll just be in the natural flow mm. of One Nation mm-hmm. Under Whiskey. Yeah, but yeah, this this is the beginning of us starting to add bar owners into the rotation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So anyway, I'm pulling the pin out and I'm letting okay. you get back into it. I am unpopping my speech balloon. What was I talking about? <laughs> you, were t- <laughs> you were talking about how shops do their own store picks and that and mm. bottles and going into consumers' shelves, but... Yeah, we are seeing as you rightly point out, a number of bars doing their own picks. And one thing we see is is a heavy American influence because mm-hmm. we've got American bars making American selections. Mm-hmm. You just mentioned just now, Delilah's and Jack Rose are making uh, Kilhoman picks. Yeah. You don't hear a lot of Scotch bar picks happening. And I think that's where you see Aaron and his brother Bob at Fountainhead. They've developed a name for themselves as bar owners who have more of those scotch picks yes. than one might expect to see. And and certainly I know you've worked directly with Aaron on some of those picks. Can you speak to that for a second? <laughs> I was proud to sell Aaron and Aaron. <laughs> I sold Aaron his first Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to Aaron and Aaron? <laughs> exactly. You know, Aaron has been a huge supporter of what what we do at Impex, and he's done his own Kilhoman pick, and he's done a, a, a pick with, with Aaron, and we, you know, we put right on there, bottled exclusively for Fountainhead. I think I tasted his first Glenn Farkless pick just as you and I were building the company, and going to Chicago and going to Fountainhead and Raj from Glass Revolution was there with some of his partners. This was back when it was still Purple Valley and he was doing an Amrut tasting. And I went to the bar and I said, oh, is, is that a bar pick? A Glenn Farkless bar pick? I just, that didn't compute. Yeah, that's uh, an right? interesting thing to see, certainly in America. Yeah, uh, but you know, he's... Like Aaron says, and, and you'll hear it in the interview, he is a whiskey guy and was a, a, a whiskey, I want to say whiskey, a scotch whiskey guy first before anything. And if you go into the bar today, obviously you'll see a good American selection and it's the higher end stuff plus the good regulars. But the vast majority of his bar is scotch whiskey, independently bottled whiskey. And yeah, it's just... For me, when I go to Chicago, I have I have three places that I love to frequent, and that is Delilah's, Fountainhead, and, and the Docks. And the Docks. I I don't know. Is that? It's where the prostitutes are. Oh, the prost. <laughs> where everybody knows your name. Hey, it's Josh. He's back. <laughs> and they're always glad you came. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> and Franklin Room. But I love going into Longman and Eagle as well. <laughs> but yeah, any, anyway, you know, as, as far as a Scotch whiskey-centric bar goes, 
I would say for as wonderful as Delilah's is, and yes, they are wonderful. They just won Whiskey Bar of the World. That's huge. Award. Congratulations to Mike there. I know he works hard at that. So right? congratulations. Um, but his his selection, I think, is very evenly distributed across Scotch whiskey, American whiskey, Japanese whiskey, Irish whiskey, anything that's fun and interesting, but he likes to create a a very even playing field, whereas Fountainhead leans a bit more towards Scotch whiskey. So let's put a little pin in the Mike Miller conversation. Oh, snippety snap. Let's pivot back to Aaron and let's hear what he had to say at the 2017 Chicago Jubilee. And please remember, dear listener... This was recorded amongst a crowd of 450 people, so there's some decent background noise going on here. So, Chicago in general strikes me as an interesting city because, for the most part at that time, and this is me maybe being a little naive, I couldn't think of many bars that would buy large casks of scotch whiskey to sell. Like Delilah's did their 13-year-old Highland Park now 11 years ago, right? And you've done your Glen Farkless, and you're still working off that Glen Farkless, right? Oh, you're not. Oh. That's been long gone. Oh, is it is it long gone? Because you had it last year. Oh, so you just brought a... We, we have some squirreled away, but 2000 hasn't been available for years, except for what's hidden somewhere in a cellar. And then we have 2005 available, which we're running very low on. And then, yeah, and then we're waiting on 2007, and that'll be the next one, probably arrive in 2018. We're working with George on that. So as a malt whiskey lover, and I love bourbon, I love bourbon, but me being, having a bit more of a, I lean more towards malt, I love that you continue to do your scotch casks. It's, it's a passion. I mean, I was I was Scotch whiskey before bourbon. Everyone knows that that knows me. And that's a huge passion. You know? That's why we get along. Yeah. That, that's the only reason, I'm sure. Yeah. So, Other than that. But that's yeah. it. It's worth it. I mean, you have the fact that we can still source it and really get some good quality product. You know, there are a few places, only a few places that I can go to. You know, I mean, we're not independent bottlers. You know, we're just trying to source some interesting things to bring to people in Chicago. So that's it. Yeah. It's real simple. Yeah. But you're, you're select, you may not be independent bottlers, but your cast selections, I think, are impeccable. Thank you. You know, you're the, the 10-year-old Aaron that you did last year, um, which is which is right here. Right? I mean, I, yes, that, that was a deal between, full disclosure, that was a deal, deal between you and I, and we no longer import that, So, but I'm still happy to say, like, it's a fantastic whiskey, and your selection was top-notch. It was the right decision. Yeah. Thank you very much. I mean, you know, the way that I look at it, and I have to give props out to uh, Susan Rosentrader and Bob Zacharias, part of the tasting team at Fountainhead. And it's the three of us that get into it, and then also, if we want to have someone come in and audit, uh, some of my partners or someone else will come in if we're not just sure and need a tiebreaker. But usually the three of us, we sit down, we tackle it in the morning or maybe over a couple mornings if we're not sure, and that's the way that we taste. What are you looking for? When, when, you, when you're selecting that cast, what is it that makes you say, yeah, this is the one? Like, is it just taste? Is it, does price, I mean, I imagine price plate, like, what is, first and foremost, what you're looking for? 
Well, of, of course it's price, but we don't start talking price until after we taste it, kind of, you know, as you know. And then, and then, then we'll go back and like, okay, well now we got to move it. And that's just, you know, that's an issue. A lot of it is on premise, so it needs to be reasonable. But otherwise, we're usually looking for, I mean, barrels that really represent an individual characteristic. That's what single barrels are about. I mean, look at what we have on the table. You can get official house bottlings of all of this, and we're not we're not going to compete with that. Then I'll just buy the official house bottle. But otherwise, we're looking for a barrel that stands out on its own. As you know, we've bought so many barrels, you know, over the years, and that's what we look for. Oh wow, maybe it's something. Maybe there are four components of a whiskey, and this is just really strong on one. It's definitely going to be a minor blend in someone's, you know, official house. But for us, just to get that one component off of it, that's really interesting. But when it comes to like Glen Barclay's Spared in the Spay, then we're look. We have a certain profile that we are going for. That it is still very Glen Barclay's, but it's still very Spared in the Spay. Glen Barclay's. You're not going to find anything like it in the 10 or the 12 or any of the younger family casks. Sell what everybody else has on the. That's the thing of single. As an independent bottler, we have a ten-year-old Lafroig on the table. Cask strength. Yeah, I'm about to have that. Which you will about to have. But here's the thing: like there is a Lafroig ten-year-old and a Lafroig cask strength. If we bottled something that was right in the same wheelhouse, then we're not doing our job just like you're not doing your job to offer something that may be different from what people are looking at. Wednesday, we're there. Right? Correct. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Josh, yeah. That's what we do. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, cool. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah. Great event. Yeah. Cheers, man. Thank you. And now, dear Joshua, you have held your pin for the duration of us listening to Aaron. Now, please... I take the pin out of what you were saying about Mike Miller and Delilah's. Well, I kind of feel like I said all I wanted to say. <laughs> like you, you put the you put the pin in right at the end. You you pin the tail on the donkey as the donkey's leaving the room. Um, <laughs> he, he, here's 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 what I have to say. What what I liked about my conversation with with Aaron was I felt that there was a clear connection between what he does from a, a cast selection standpoint. And obviously mm-hmm. his own selections are distill- distilleries bottling for, whereas we as independent bottlers are distillery bottled by. So, so it's a different scenario, but the approach is the same. Mm-hmm. And when I think about the remainder of this conversation... I think, and I'm sure you'll agree here, I think you'll find that the Mike Miller from Delilah's conversation starts part two of of the podcast and the connection that we have with Fountainhead is similar to the connection that Mike has with Barrel Thief from a community standpoint. Oh, without any shadow of a doubt. Yeah. Absolutely, yes. Yeah, I think Aaron is a lovely bridge into Mike. And uh, this conversation with Mike will be a lovely bridge into Gronbeck. Yeah. Are we just going to let the conversation run with Mike? I think we should because I found his commentary to be captivating so much so that I barely said a word. Like he just went on talking about his philosophy and you can hear the passion. He's been at this now 
24 years, but I think this was recorded last year, so it's him talking about 23, but now here he is 24 years into doing it, maybe almost 25. No, he was 26 when he started the bar, and he was in his 24th year, so he had just turned 50, so now he's in his 25th year. So, Can you frame it for me? Were you interviewing him in the bar? At one point later in the audio, he almost supplies his own soundtrack. So yeah, so I, I got to the bar before it had really opened, came there to taste him on a bunch of stuff, and then I said, hey, you want to have a conversation? And he said, I would love to. So yeah, so it was in the bar and they had just turned down some of the music, but it wasn't open to the public yet. That's the part I was curious about. If you'd started with it closed and over the course of the conversation, the bar opened. The bar was still closed to the public when you completed the interview? Correct. Correct. They were just warming everything up for Mm -hmm. the punters, the clientele. Clientele. The clientele. (laughs) Before we turn the floor over to, to Mike here, I also wanted to add that Mike's not only a great interview in this episode, he's also been a great interview in previous Jubilee recaps. That's very true. Yeah, the the final Jubilee recap, he got to talk about his two wild turkey picks, the Eddie pick and the and the Jimmy pick and and actually when I was in Chicago last week, they were releasing a beer that they just did with um I think it was Revolution. Gosh, my my mind is escaping me, but they basically took the wild turkey mash bill and created a beer from the wild turkey mash bill specific for Delilah's in collaboration with these um, with these two picks. That's wild. That's I think that's how it should be. I think that's going to be part of the future is how is beer paired with whiskey. Something mm-hmm. we've talked about previously. Uh, we had a we dipped our toe in it mm-hmm. with our whiskey jubilee in New York beer uh, mm-hmm. that went on to the cask went on to age our Chicago jubilee whiskey and when you drink the beer next to the whiskey amazing relationship so yeah I think that's really smart thing for Mike to be doing and I know other people are doing it mm-hmm. power to everybody I think that's super smart yeah. Yeah. Okay. So enough from us. Let's throw the floor over to your interview with Mike Miller at Delilah's. In Chicago. Best whiskey bar in the world. As announced by Whiskey Magazine. In 2018. Yes. Uh, 2019. I just meant you recorded in 2018. Oh, I see. Okay. Let's stop talking now. (laughs) With your few bottling in mind, you picked out 15 barrels at one time. Mm Mm-hmm. Which yeah, sounds. We sampled more than 15. <laughs> probably. <laughs> we probably sampled at least 25 barrels that day. And then the the remaining, and then the remaining barrels the next day, different session or. I I was at few four times, one time to work up the project, mm. one time with just Paul and I and we probably picked out five or six Mm -hmm. Um, it would have been actually six and then it was myself Mary and Paul for the bulk of an afternoon we picked out 15 (laughs) we sampled about like I said I think we sampled about 25 that day yeah and then Paul and I built a prototype we took an ounce out of every barrel out of 21 barrels 
and then we selected the last two based on notes from the previous we sampled through 40 total wow so the curiosity about that project was a we picked a number of barrels and then built a whiskey based on a number of barrels mm-hmm. and b we couldn't go in saying this is what we want it to taste like we went in saying we want to build a whiskey and we'll let the whiskey do the talking Wow, okay. So the whiskey, as we tasted, we didn't say, it turned out to be 11 barrels of bourbon, 11 barrels of rye, one barrel of malt whiskey that had some smoke in it. But we didn't know that going in. It wasn't like, I want 11 and 11, just the way it shook out. Okay. You know, because when when we were there that day, the big day, I mean, you know, there were all kinds of funny reasons. Like one barrel, someone had wrote Natalie on the on the barrel, and we have both have a friend named Natalie, so we'll try the Natalie barrel. <laughs> There was a barrel that had Mary's husband's birthday on it. Like, try that one. That's funny. You know, it was just what we would choose to pick to taste something wouldn't dictate that whether we were going to use it or not. For some reason, I like barrels that look like they've been leaking. Mm -hmm. So, you know. You you were not alone there. Yeah. For the leaker. Yeah. Um, But we were just sort of like, you know, we were experimenting at the same time with a lot of things. We were experimenting with, like, is higher in the warehouse? Do we like those better, medium, lower? We did not find that there was... A, a, a constant there that we all okay. we always like the higher ones or the lower ones or the middle ones. Yeah. But I'll tell you that project, the current twenty fourth anniversary, the project that we worked with with on, on the Kelhoman project together, Compass Box project. If you look at all of them and the way that we discuss them with our customers and how they exist, mm. how we exist, it all comes back to our sensibility towards community. The bar is a community place. Yeah, supports communities of people. It's supported by communities of people. Sometimes it's about the rock and roll scene. Sometimes it's about the whiskey scene, mm-hmm. the beer scene, art scene, film scene, how those things kind of merge here at Delilah's. Right. So when, for many years, while I'm working on projects with other distilleries, Paul, owner of Few, he discussed with me many times, like, when are we going to do a project? When are we going to do a project? And I always told him, when the right project is there, then yeah. we'll do a project. Yeah. When it was our 23rd anniversary, I had some ideas in my head of some things that I wanted to work on. And then I had this idea in my head that I wanted to build a whiskey. Mm. And instead of being a 23-year-old whiskey, um, we had already done our Compass Box project, which was the first thing we released internationally. And we want, I wanted to do something that there'd be more bottles than what, just what we would need at the bar. Yeah. So I called Paul, and I said, you know, this is my idea. And he said, let's do it. So, you know, right off the bat, like, you know, here's someone I know really well, but now he's making a business commitment. Yeah. You know, he knows I'm not taking all 1,800 bottles. Yeah. So he has a vested interest in this project now, too. Yeah. Um, I called some uh, local retailers, lo- international retailers. My first call was to Brett mm-hmm. over at Benny's. I said, this is my project. And his response was, how many, how many can I have? Nice. You know, I called yeah. Sikindra Say in London, yeah. said, how many can I have? Yeah. So right away, I knew that two big international retailers were on board. So Paul wouldn't be at risk mm-hmm. sitting on whiskey if it didn't, if people didn't want it. I didn't think that was going to be a problem. Right, right. But right away, our community of people were involved. Right away, just on this one side of it. Yeah. So, you know, um, I met a, 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 a girl who's a singer for a local band, and they, she designed all of the T-shirts for the band. It was really avant-garde kind of stuff. I really yeah. liked it. I liked your band. Talked to her afterwards about doing some DJing. I saw her work, and I was like, hey, I really like your T-shirt designs. You know, who did those? I did. She's a art major, 
and she drew the design for the label. Wow. So it's just, you know, and in all in all in all cases our our whole bar is is kind of reflected in those special whiskey releases that we do. So if we go back, especially when we get to the like Compass Box project, mm. So that's I worked with John Glazier on that for mo- many years, developing how we were approaching that and where we were going to meet these barrels from, and how we were going to pursue this project of creating this crossover um, Scotch whiskey, American whiskey, yeah. a really pressy American whiskey point in a way that we really hadn't seen before, and bring our two sort of sensibilities together to have a punk rock bar whiskey brand yeah. on his extremely well regarded label exactly. you know and bring our two sort of brands together and you know his community of designers worked on it i sent them all my sort of work including work from my previous designers they came up with various things that came down to a design that i think is absolutely spectacular um we put that whiskey out same thing um that was going to nine going to 13 countries went to 30 states and for me we still get pictures from people. Yeah. Okay, so there was, you know, we, we, all over the world, but a couple really stand in my mind, and it's usually this case. We got a picture from this guy, been coming to the bar for years, and he's in Shanghai. And the bottle's sitting on the bar, mm. he's got his arms around both bartenders, and they got big smiles on their faces. So for me, the bottle started yeah. a conversation. Yeah. And our community yeah. was at that bar. And That's he had a so better experience because of his affiliation with the bar, mm-hmm. that bottle changed his experience. So for us, the whiskeys and the communities that are all involved in it, you know, sometimes it's just things that I know, but all the way back, the first barrel we ever picked out was with Joe Conjusti from Sam's and yeah. Elmer Teeley in 1999. Wow. That was the first barrel pick I ever sure. did. And I didn't go there to a barrel pick. I got invited by Joe to go sample with him. Right. And I want to do that. You know, that was definitely before this was a thing. Right. And um, so it was me and Joe and Elmer. It was pretty cool. Wow. And um, that was the first time we picked one. We're just about to put a whiskey out that's a tribute to Joe and Elmer. Um, that is my sort of tip back to that wow. to that moment. Okay. So that I did with, that I'm doing with Buffalo Trace. So, and who did I set that up with and go taste with? I tasted with Chris Comstock, you know, and my buddies. Like, yeah. So, in all cases, the projects that we work on really envelop our community mm-hmm. around, in and around the bar. So, if you look at things we've done with, with Drew Colesveen down at, at, at Willick, Kentucky Bourbon Distillers, um, he's always had a big, a big factor here. Um, some of our Scotch friends that we can't name that helped us with some projects, the Kilhoman project that we did yeah, yeah. that extended between what you do, what we do, and what Jack Rose does. Right. And so we had talked about doing a project together. You brought us the right project. So project number one, mm-hmm. you know, you became part of the community yeah. of that project. Yeah. And so, you know, historically at Delilah's, we've always affiliated with other bars. In the early days, it was primarily other rock and roll bars little breweries mm, you know mm-hmm. all of a sudden down in Kentucky they were paying attention to what we were doing um, and so this whole idea of this our community minded rock and roll thing started to engage you know the beer community in Chicago when I started here I had been brewing in Chicago and so I, at one point when the bar opened I knew all the local brewers mm-hmm. we all knew each other there were only a handful of people Yeah. so the community of, of local brewers um, 
and I mean now it's hard to know all of the local brewers. Certainly, you know, I think there's now 6,300 American breweries. So, wow, it's okay. You can't know everybody anymore, right? But if you look at it, if if you take, um, let's just say for it, just as an example, without discounting in any manner, if you take major whiskey distilleries around the world that are making a lot of whiskey. Mm-hmm. How many master distillers are there? 500? Yeah. In the world. Yeah. Yep. Okay? If you add all the small distilleries into it, you're talking about a couple thousand? A couple thousand, yeah, sure. 3,000 3, in the world. The, yeah, yeah. So if you take whiskey distillers internationally, there probably are more than 3,000 people who do that. As the person pushing the button. It's a small number of people. And there are 6,000 breweries. Yeah. Just in America. Yeah. So, so when I first started to get engaged with selling more whiskey, the community around whiskey felt to me a lot like the community around beer in the early days for oh, me. Okay. Everybody knows each other. Yeah. Go down to Bardstown. Everybody knows each other. Yeah. It's not just because they're cousins. Yeah. But they all know each other. Yeah. And there's just a community about it. And when you get really kind of introduced into the, into that community and the same with the scotch guys everybody knows each other and they might be competitors but they all drink together yep and you know even when they're giving each other a hard time they're still all buddies and boys and girls mm-hmm. and so you know all these things sort of work with you know for the sensibility of Delilah's it's not just business it's supposed to be about having fun yeah, yeah. and and you know this sense this like I said the sense of community is really what this bar is about to begin with so you know if you look at what we do here, we do spirits. We do, you know, in a pretty significant manner. Mm-hmm. We do beer in a very serious manner. We have ten thousand bottles of beer cellaring for special events and wow. crazy stuff. Okay. You know, yeah. um, we do custom art shows. I mean, there's the label for the new whiskey as it was painted. Oh, nice! By Emily Report, who's done three custom shows for us and now put out a book, paintings of Delilah's. Yeah. So, like. These are all just sort of our, you know, I told Emily I wanted a painting. I wanted a painting. Well, functionally, I wanted a label design that could be on a bottle mm-hmm. that was an image of the back bar that would be on a bottle that would be on the back bar. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I thought it was funny. Wow. Yeah. And she did great jobs. Fantastic. Yeah. And then this is her, you know, all these paintings are hers. So it all becomes, again, part of what we do. But, again, if we look back at, you know, that, that the compass box equation of, um, working with my community over here to put out a product, and there's certainly business to put out a, a product that would then my affiliate bars around the world could carry, mm. and then bars that never heard of us before become kind of engaged with our community too. Yeah. And when our community ends up in their bar, and they're like, exactly, I go to that bar. Yeah. Then a conversation yeah, it's a familiar starts. Familiar thing. And, yeah. Exactly. And then that conversation leads to experiences for all parties changing. Mm-hmm. And that's the message we send out into the world every day, you know, that we all get together and share some things together and have a good time. Sometimes people come here just to drink whiskey. And all of a sudden they're like, man, what's this music that's playing tonight? And all of a sudden they never, they didn't, maybe didn't know what Sky was when they walked in the door, yeah. but they know what it is after they listen yeah. to Chuck Ransman for a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, sometimes people understand the amalgam that is Delilah's. They understand the canvas. Yep. Sometimes people only understand a little bit of it, and they get engaged by the other parts. Sometimes people just come here, and they just like the atmosphere. They're not even sure why. Yeah, exactly. And I always say yep. it. Everyone's welcome, just not for everybody. <laughs> no? But that's okay. That's okay, yep. because last night I had a couple in here, and they live in... Uh, 
they, they live on the West Coast now. They live in Chicago for the bulk of their lives. They used to come here in the, in the late 90s, regular customers. And they came in last night, and they thanked me. They're having a great time. They thanked me for it still being it for them. Wow. That ideologically, it was the same place. And, the, and, and she said, it's not a time warp. It's the same thing. Yeah. So for her, it felt like the bar that she wanted to come to still. Right. And I told her, well, you know, I'm the target customer. When I was a 26-year-old punk rocker, I was the target customer. Yeah. Now I'm a 5.0 punk rocker, and I'm still the target customer. <laughs> so Are you, are you 5.0 5.0, now, 0, right? yeah. Oh, 26 plus 24. There you go. Yeah. I just did math. So how about that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> so... I think I've always said, you know, if, if you like the bar, then in some way, shape, or form, you have something in common probably with me and the yeah. other people on the staff yeah. and yeah. most likely people sitting around you. So, you know, again, you know, you might come in here just on your own. You're in from out of town. You might not have the bar by the time you leave. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to how do we approach our whiskeys and how we, you know, showcase them to people, um, it always comes with why, how. Yeah. With yep. whom? Mm-hmm. Not just it. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, though it's happened sometimes, I'm not all that interested in just saying, okay, you know, here's my barrel select. You know, for me, um, there needs to be more to it than, mm-hmm. than, than that. You know, the odds that someone's going to send us some samples, we're going to pick one, they're going to bottle it and ship it to me. It's slim. Right. It's not like it couldn't happen. It right. has. Just, but it's a weird set of circumstances that surround it. But like I said, we're doing, you know, the Wild Turkey Project, and it's, you know, it's my community of turkey yeah. that will yeah. be, you know, in-house all the yeah. time. Yeah. Um, the project we're doing Buffalo Trace right now, it, it reflects what the day I had with, with Joe and Juicy and, and Elmer T. Lee in 1999 in a bottle. Wow, wow, yeah. And when we release that, and the, and the way we're going to release it will definitely bring the community point home for okay. that. But again, you know, all the way down the line, our Opadon project, mm-hmm. it's Jeff from Opadon Spirits and yeah. Wheeling. Yeah. Um, I've been interested in what he's doing for a long time. He did something, was working on some projects I'm really engaged by, and we did a whiskey that was finished in a barrel that had Maker's Mark in it and Lafroig in it and then Opadon in it. Oh, wow. So it's like we're very affiliated with the Maker's yeah, Mark people yeah. and have been since minute one. Yeah, yeah. The first Maker's Mark neon sign ever made. Yeah, okay. Um, with our friends at Lafroig, you know, John Campbell's in town. He's here. Yep. No course. doubt about it. Yep. So we totally affiliate with both those distilleries and then we end up finishing our Opadon single malt rye in a barrel that had Maker's Mark and Lafroig. Wow. Uh, DNA of... Of people we totally affiliate with, yeah. all in a whiskey, all at yep. the same time. Yep. I, I I love that you're pulling all of that together. Right, and then so the label cool. designed by my local painter yeah. to you know really bring it together. And now Jeff does a project that is different than you know what we brought to it made it different mm. than what he was going to do just on his own. And does that mean more people know about him? I think so. Mm-hmm. Does it mean more people know about me? Certainly conceivable, but. As long as we're working together, putting out cool stuff, and supporting each other, small businesses or big businesses, but our, our communities of people, and that's right. then I'm in. Right. Yeah. Um, like I said, it, if it's just my business, then I'm, yeah. I'm only so interested. Yeah. Exactly. It's 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 about our our, you know, what's what's going on around us, 
And so I think when you look at how whiskey comes to a consumer, I think, you know, we, we you pointed out something earlier when we were looking at a bottle of whiskey about manufacturer. And it still happens, but maybe more people who are a little bit newer to the game. But eight years ago, six, seven, eight years ago, mm-hmm. people would come in pretty regularly and tell me about, you know, how their family was a distilling family and they have this product and they're real coy with a lot of the information. Yeah. We all understand the equation that I'm yeah. discussing. And so the backstory wasn't equivalent to the juice. So I would always say, you know, you don't have to spin me a tail and, and, and leave out the middle. Mm. Spin, tell me what this is all about. And then I'm more apt to want to tell your story to somebody else. Exactly. Yeah. But if I think you're kind of, you know, bullshitting me, well, I'm not going to bullshit my customers. I'm not going to bullshit my my staff, and they're not going to bullshit the people who come and sit yeah. at the bar. So, you know, anytime somebody comes in, we had a guy come in. It was a different kind of spirit. It was a rum, and he came in, and I never saw this guy before. He set this bottle on, you know, on the bar like it was covered up, and he goes, "This is the best brown spirit you're ever going to have." And I was like, the other people in the room, the other suppliers were like, oh, my God. <laughs> they were like they were like covering their faces, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. And I looked at the guy, and I'm like, I have 17 my own brands, man. You can tell me what you just put on the bar is better than anything I've ever done myself. Yeah. That's what you just told me. Yeah. We're off to a good start. Yeah, right. Right? <laughs> and so we tried his rum, and it was okay, um, but it was clearly adulterated. It, you know, it wasn't the best brown spirit I ever had. It certainly wasn't the best rum I ever had. And so I started asking the guy questions about it, and he's telling me that the sugar cane comes from seven different islands, and and I'm like, okay, you know, I'll have to research that. I didn't know that, you know, the terroir of the sugar cane was was that dramatically different. I said, did you mean that there's seven different islands? Rums blended? Yeah. No, it was sugar cane. I said, I asked him, well, you know, I said, are there any adjuncts in here? He's like, what's an adjunct? I said, is there anything in here? I was starting to get like, man, yeah, you know, exactly. you don't even know about your own brand, dude. <laughs> and I was like, is there anything in here other than water, sugar, yeast, in a barrel? Yeah. And he was like, it's all natural. Yeah. And I said, well, vanilla beans are all natural, too. Right. Yeah, is there exactly. anything else in here, man? <laughs> and he just wouldn't give us straight answers. And I was like, man, you know, here's the problem. You know, you came in, you told me this is the best thing ever. Yeah. But you can't tell me about it, or you're being coy about the answers. Yeah. So why would I want to carry your product? Because yeah. I can't tell the next person. I tell people all the time, too, that the more complicated your story is, and the more gray area there is, then, you know, it's, it's going to be harder for us. Because the person who invented it, makes it, ages it, bottles it, whatever, they're going to tell somebody what they did. And that person's going to tell somebody, and that person maybe is going to tell me, and I'm going to tell my team, and they're going to tell the customer. Now you're like six steps away from the original story. Yeah. yeah. So that story better be pretty legit by the time it gets to the person who's drinking it. And the the closer we can get from the person who made the whiskey to the person who's drinking the whiskey, the better. Mm -hmm. So like I said, as soon as somebody comes in and tells me, spin some story, Odds that I'm going to want to work with that product. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Slimming by the second. But yeah. this person, what's an adjunct? <laughs> like, you know. Oh, that's great. And I told him before he left, like, obviously the other salespeople in the room, they were like, when he left, they were like, oh, man. They were yeah. like, you you went easy on him. You know, because, like I said, you know, he just, if you're going to walk into somebody's business and say, this, they've never had anything better than what you're showing them, man. You're really going out on a limb, and you better better be able to back that up. Yeah. And and once they left, the guy said, 
you know, uniformly everyone was like, well, A, you should probably know about your product before mm-hmm. you go in and, and try to sell it yeah. to somebody who, who clearly knows about spirits. And then somebody else was like, and they, he might have wanted to like know about where he was going exactly before he walked in the door. That's he came in with this like, you know, yeah. like maybe we had really basic products and we wouldn't know any better. Yeah. Oh, I'm, sure there, I'm sure there's a host of bars he could have gone to and, that, and what he did would have been perfect. Right. But when you come in here, I mean, first off, that's sales, salesmanship 101. Know your shit. Right. Know what you're selling. Right. So when you walk into Delilah's yeah. and you want to show us something, yeah. you should at least know you're in Delilah's. And yeah. you should um, understand that we have our own Delilah's brands and we have our own, you know, um, perspective on things. And we, you know, there's a, you know, we have a little bit of notoriety out yeah. there. People know we're here. Yeah. And for we're not hard to find. Yeah. We're not hard to Google. And read about. Yeah. So, um, hit the interweb, baby. And so, yeah. so like I said, when when it comes to how do we get the message to the customer, not just about our own products, mm. our our you know specific Delilah's anniversary whiskeys, our Delilah's Kill Home and Jack Rose whiskeys, our collaborations as we move forward, mm-hmm. you know, and things like we're doing the Blonde Brothers Fever River thing tonight, mm. local. You know, legit. They're gonna. The people who make it are gonna be here. Yeah. Um, it's really just about understanding product knowledge, meeting the people who make it, learning about how the products are made, yeah. and being able to, you know, educate people as well as entertain people. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's sort of the key. Um, it, you know, we're in the fun business, mm. but it's a lot more fun if you know what you're talking about. Yeah. So as we just heard from Mike there. That sense of community, that sense of knowing the product, that sense of knowing what you're presenting to mm-hmm. people who frequent your bar. Yeah. There's a meaningful relationship there. There's trust there. And you said it before we went into the, the audio and it's so resounding coming out of it is that passion, that mm-hmm. level of mm-hmm. passion that Mike has there. I love hearing it and, and to know that he's a terrific supporter of ours really means the world to us. Yeah, and when I listen back to that audio, all I can think of is the authenticity behind it all where, you know, he talked about it. You know, if he has salespeople coming in trying to sell him a story on a product and he hears bullshit, he's going to call bullshit and he's going to say, you know, you may be able to sell that elsewhere. It just doesn't happen at this bar. Um, it's it has to be truth in advertising here. Yeah, I wanted to to use that part from Mike to pivot back to something you and I have talked about previously, but it really informs everything we do. You and I will often talk, as Mike just did in that interview, about finding a cask or making a pick that tells a good story. Yeah, and. I think it's all too easy to equivocate story with marketing. Mm. And, and, and we never want to do that. We want the cask to be able to tell its own story free from marketing bullshit. Yeah. Free from, okay, what's, what's, what's the story again that I need to remember to tell? So, no, can that cask tell its own story yeah. 
does it have its own background? Does it have a key mash bill? Does it have some kind of maturation on it? You know, what what what's the genuine history mm. of that cask? And for me, it's all context. It's the historical context of that cask. And that exists completely free yeah. from marketing bullshit. And so uh, that really informs what you and I do. Yeah. I love hearing Mike say it here, but I want to be very cautious that our listener doesn't start to think, wait, they're, they're talking about story being a good thing, but they're also talking about a marketer's story being a bad thing. Well, yes, for these reasons. Yeah. Here's why a cast story is a good thing. Here's why marketing stories, oftentimes bullshit, are bad things. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember you and I, in 2011, we went to... Oh, darn it. I forget the restaurant now. It was in the bottom floor. It was... They Which had a, city, Joshua? It was in Leith. Oh, okay. A restaurant. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was, it was underneath the vaults. It was underneath the vaults. Yeah, in Leith. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. There's an Italian ownership there, I think. Yeah, the guy had the largest collection of whiskey, certainly in Italy, maybe beyond that, largest private collection. Largest, yeah. In Italy, perhaps beyond that. Right. And And the place went belly up. It did go belly up, sadly, sadly. But it was one of the earlier times, I can think, where I heard a story about a whiskey where I said, I love the historic, the the factual detail behind that whiskey. And it was uh, an independently bottled Portellan from 1983, and it was from their final mashings. Right, it was. I think it was a provenance bottle or something like that. Those types of stories, that's the real deal. When you say, "Here's a bit of history," this whiskey was made from a distillery that is now long gone. Think you know it's being rebuilt, but is long gone. Mm -hmm. And here's something from their last mashings. Yeah, you know, and and that and that's all you need. You don't need to hear other fantastical stories about anything. No. no, this this is history right here. And that's the type of stuff that I think Mike will glom onto and say, that's smart. That's something my customers would want to hear rather than, I don't know, insert fantastical whiskey story here. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, we'll think about our most recent trip down to Wild Turkey and, and you and I talking about the spider cask. That yeah. spider cask in the corner covered in spiders' webs. The last time it was hit by a hammer, all the spiders came out, just scared the bejesus out of people. But what a story to tell. It has <laughs> yeah. nothing to do with the quality of the juice inside. It has nothing to do with the production of the juice inside the cask. It's just a little bit of a crazy story about, you know, for once in our lives, a cask that actually was sitting in the corner of a warehouse. <laughs> kind of... <laughs> forgotten about but also kind of avoided yeah. it's, it's just another layer to that but it, it says nothing about you know whether the whiskey is going to be any good it's those marketing stories that connect you know disparate elements together mm. and purport that the whiskey will be terrific interesting yeah yeah, yep, no, you can, yep. you can tell me a story about you're on an island or you've got some history or 
you know, Vikings maybe come to mind, you know? Like, the, the, you can tell those stories. Those are great stories, but you can't connect it to the liquid in the cask. Or the that, liquid in the, the juice. Or the liquid in the juice. Squeeze the lemon till the juice runs down your leg. I wonder if you know what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm squeezing the juice right now. What am I doing? <laughs> so I interviewed Grombeck back in September of 2018. I had done a tasting at Barrel Thief the night before I was getting ready to leave for Boise, mm-hmm. which has become, you know, my my two-step when I go up to the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it was early in the morning. He'd been doing some work on the bar. He told me to come on by. We poured a couple of things and and as we were sitting there dramming and talking, same deal. I, you know, can I ask you a few questions? Can we get something on wax? He was more than happy to accommodate. And one of the things that I've always enjoyed about spending time chatting with Grombeck is he he is a, a whiskey geek. And and as you'll hear in, in the interview, he does a lot of education. He teaches mm. spirits classes and he's mm-hmm. he's taught wine classes and tea classes and chocolate classes and you know tequila classes and so on and so forth. Mezcal classes, rum classes. I can't stop myself. And 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 so I learned so much in talking to him. And and again, as you'll hear in the interview, as an educator, he's learning along the way as well. Yeah. And and he's deeply connected to that process. And so in my conversation with with Grombeck, as I always affectionately call him, you're going to hear us talk about some of the the tax law in the state of Washington. Oh, right. Yeah. Why pricing is the way it is in the mm-hmm. state of Washington. What are the challenges for a bar owner in making that work? And you also hear a little bit of of his bar history, where he 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 started as a cafe in Fremont, and pivoted to being a whiskey bar. And it's a it's very interesting how he's done it. And now that he's a whiskey bar and a very successful whiskey bar, it's great to hear what he still works on, what he's still developing in that space that is called the Barrel Thief. So when he was the cafe... Was it the same physical space and he transformed it into a bar? The same four walls. Wow. Other than that, he has changed a lot. And you'll hear some of what he's changed in this interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But okay. it's it's interesting listening to Mike Miller, who is this top-notch, world-class whiskey punk dive bar and mm-hmm. how your aesthetic comes together around you. And here you've got Grombeck saying, here's the things I wanted to deliver to a consumer that I had to pivot from one type of aesthetic, one certain need, to a new type of need. So let's throw the floor over to Christopher Grombeck and listen to a different side of the bar scene. So I was thinking this on the flight up here. When you and I first met, I think you were pretty fresh off of being a tea and chocolate bar with wine? With wine. So it was a it was a wine bar cafe. So we served probably 15 to 20 wines by the glass, and then we had coffee and tea, and we were also a chocolate retailer. So definitely more of a cafe. And when did you open? We opened that uh, six years ago last week. Okay. So t- September 2012. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
And so did you and I meet in 2013? I believe so. Uh, ten months in, we changed from the cafe to a wine and whiskey bar. It, it, uh, it actually didn't take that long to figure out what path forward m- might assist us in continuing to exist. So had you seen the whiskey boom coming? Were you getting customers asking? Could you, could you see the demand for it? I think that's right when it was picking up. So I would say somewhere five, six, seven years ago is when you started to see the market increasing for whiskey in Seattle. I mean, there were always people who appreciated whiskey, but there was a little bit of a a tide growing. There was a buzz growing. uh, There was more whiskey coming available in the market because that was pretty close to right after liquor stores went from owned by the state to being privately owned. So give us a little bit more about that for our listeners who don't know anything about the Washington market. Something crazy happened. Yeah, I guess that's crazy. I mean, it's it's crazy and it's not crazy. So just around a decade ago, uh, we had the transition from state-owned liquor stores only. So you had to go to a Washington state liquor store to buy any kind of spirits to a privatization where now you can sell spirits at specialty stores or at large retailers. So a little mom-and-pop shop can't sell spirits. So you have to be a 10,000-square-foot store to sell spirits unless you're able to get a grandfathered license from one of the state stores. Okay. And then associated with that has been, um, is it a price increase or is it just, my understanding is the state still wants to get their cut. Anybody with a 10,000 square foot building wants to get their cut, but prices seem to be a little high in the state of Washington. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, The whole initiative was marketed as more diversity and lower prices, but those of us in the industry knew that the state was not going to give up their percentage, and you're adding an entire new layer of people trying to make money. So rationally, there was no way that prices were going to go down, and they didn't. Um, Estimates I've seen seem like there may be a 20% increase in prices on average, because you essentially have the state taking their cut, which is a spirits tax and a leader tax and a sales tax. There's three taxes. And then the distributors make money, and then the retailers make money. So there's a lot of people taking a little bit out of each glass that you're drinking. Holy moly. So as a bar owner, how do you fit in there? How do you make a model work that somebody would still want to come in and and pay money for good whiskey? And we'll talk about your selection in just a moment. But how do you get them to come in part with their money when you're competing with pricing that seems astronomical. I mean, one thing is we're not really competing with people outside the state when people are coming in to drink money. You know, no one's going to drive down to California for a glass of whiskey. (laughs) Now, when you get into off-premise, in other words, businesses which are selling bottles, they're competing with, you know, mail order and other businesses where they're more directly competing with people in other states with lower taxes. Okay. Okay. So for you, it's really just how do I get them to come to Barrel Thief as opposed to the bar next door or across the street or around the corner. Yeah, that's right. When, when I'm out and about, I, I pay close attention to the prices that I'm seeing on shelves. Your prices seem very competitive. Obviously, you're a man in charge of a business and you're making deliberate decisions here, but do you have to give up on something else to have affordable whiskey prices? Is it just your you're cutting back on your own margins? Like, how does the pricing work for you to have such an attractive price point on your shelves? 
I think that our pricing is is accurate and it's something that works for us as a business. So we have a very consistent model that we use for this is what we pay for something, this is what we're going to sell it for, and we just keep that across the board for um, 99% of what we sell. So I know what I need as a business to make the model work financially with a certain cost of goods sold. So I know what percentage of revenue I need the cost of the product to represent, and we try and keep that accurate. That lets customers make a choice. Mm -hmm. So if the distributor comes to us or a manufacturer comes to us and says, here's a product and this is how much it costs, we can put it up with accurate pricing and consumers can decide, is that a good deal? Am I getting a product that I want for that price? Mm -hmm. And of course, we do kind of an initial screening. You know, We are offered products that we believe are not worth to the consumer what they're going to have to pay for them. And in general, we will not accept those products. Mm -hmm. If something is vastly overpriced, I don't feel good charging customers a certain amount for it. So usually it's, it's consumer choice that drives that, but there are times where we decide not to take on a product because we believe there are better products for less that are going to give someone an equivalent or better experience. Okay, and speaking of the choices you're making, you have a major focus on independent bottlers mm -hmm. and cast strength. Am I right in saying you still have some 40s, 43s on your shelves? You're not exclusively avoiding them, but your, what, what's it called? Your inventory, mm -hmm. your selection, right. um, is towards the cask strength side of things. Uh, how much was that deliberate, and when did you start with that type of focus? Right, I think it's two things. First of all, we're trying to we're really trying to get as much diversity in whiskey as possible, and other spirits as well. You know, we have a really good selection of mezcals and other things, but whiskey is clearly our focus, being the Barrel Thief Wine and Whiskey Bar. Uh, we probably have 350 whiskeys available, and. Part of how we get diversity in whiskey, especially for scotch, because that's where, you know, there's not a lot of independently bottled rye whiskey. Um, there's contract whiskey in American whiskey, but very little in the way of independent bottlings. But looking at scotch, when we just try and get as diverse of a selection as possible, one byproduct of that is that we get to, we have to, but we get to work with as many independent bottlers as possible, because those are the people who are releasing things that you're just not going to see in every single store, in every single bar. And for us, trying to get as much diversity in front of the consumer as possible is its one of our major goals. And we do that through our selection. We do that through our classes and tastings. We do that through our passport programs, which gives incentive for people to try as many different wines as whiskey as possible. So we get people who come in here who have tried you know, 150 whiskeys, and they never get the same one twice. And that's just, it's a really major focus of ours to be the place where people can uh, explore, where they can discover. And that's one of our major goals is to have not just the most whiskeys, but just to keep our selection going. So we have 350 or so, but those rotate quite a bit. So over the course of a year, we probably have 500 to 1,000 different whiskeys available. Well, that's a good number for... Yeah. Uh, you know, for a small square right. footage right. bar to have that many coming through, especially right. if you've got locals who are showing up right. regularly purchasing from you, like you're saying with your passport program. Right. Um, any favorite independent bottlers that you rely on? I'm not leading the witness here. You are obviously <laughs> going to lead with single cast nation. But, but as, as an independent bottler fan, and you and I having conversations about independent bottlers, uh, who do you tend to find you can rely on? Yeah, um, and part of it is who is distributed here. So there's kind of two different classes of independent bottlers, those we work with directly, like Single Cast Nation, where we can get whiskey from you, it's sent to us, and that, you know, we love working with 
smaller distributors, smaller bottlers, and smaller producers because they are at our scale. Mm -hmm. And they understand our business. They understand because they're small businesses themselves. They understand what our needs are, what kind of communication and reliability and pricing is important for our customers. So working with a small bottler like Single Cast Nation is fantastic. And then the whole other category would be the larger bottlers that come out of Scotland that we get through distribution. Mm -hmm. So um, AD Ratray, for instance, is pretty well represented on our shelves. They focus on single cask releases or at least cast strength releases and really, really innovative stuff. You know, there'll be distilleries whose juice normally just goes into blends, but Rat Ray or others will express those in a bottling and people will get to try a distillery they've never heard of. And people are just, wow, that's a distillery? And, they, <laughs> it, and that's what people are going to jump on because, you know, you get tired of seeing the same 10 or 20 distilleries at most bars. So to come in here and find 70 or 80 different distilleries represented is really fun. Have you found there to be a distillery that people have never heard of and then once they taste it, it really blows their mind? Um, I think there are a lot of those. I think uh, something like Kilhoman has been one that our customers in general have not heard of. Uh, they've heard of maybe three or four of the Isla distilleries, pretty familiar with them, but Kilhoman being both small and new compared to the others, is one that is a surprise to people. But the nice thing is we'll have whiskey flights where there'll be a couple of fairly familiar distilleries, and then we'll have something like Kilhoman in there, and people are like, well, I know I like these two. I don't know what this one is, but I'm only committing to a half an ounce of it in the flight. I'm willing to give it a try. Mm -hmm. So I think flights and passports have been the two ways we've gotten people to get out of their comfort zone and stop drinking the same three or four scotches every time, and sometimes they just go, wow. And they might not like everything they try, but at least you know, you're know you just trying it. You're not buying a whole bottle of it. So anything on your shelves right now that either you're pushing or your, your bar staff is pushing, just something that you got it in and it blew your socks off as somebody who's tasted hundreds and thousands of scotchies? Yeah, I think there are a couple that in the last couple of weeks we've really moved through. Um, one is an undisclosed dis island distillery that was a cask strength release that we got a couple bottle of lately that you may be familiar with. Mm -hmm. uh, that one, we blew through a bottle and a half of it before it went on the menu, and that was in two weeks. That was never on the menu. So that's how I know that something is really good is that before I put it on the menu, staff hand sell almost two full bottles of it before I have a chance to even put it on the menu and print it. So it's just when staff likes something, that's what's going to sell. Because we get people coming in here who know what they want. They say, you know, I'm willing either, I know in advance what I want or I can look at the menu and make a determination. But some people come in and they're a little, blown away by a 20-page single-space whiskey menu, and they just look at the bartender or talk to the server and say, you know me, yeah. what do I need in my glass? And that's when it's uh, what staff like to push is really what sells. But, but I think that's, uh, that's an aspect for you, the barrel thief, that you've really led with, which was the classes, the education, right. the need to have a staff who can speak to a customer. I don't think you would have your selection that you have if you didn't have A, knowledgeable staff, B, knowledgeable consumers right. who are willing to learn about things that they don't know. I know that when you were still the tea and chocolate place, you still ran classes then. And so has education always played a, a major role in 
in how you're presenting um, your products to the, the public? Absolutely. I think that comes from a few places. Uh, first of all, I have a teaching background, and most of my teaching has been in the solar energy and green buildings field, but I've been teaching wine classes for over a decade and now whiskey classes for about five years. I think we have uh, customers who are very interested in learning, and I think we have invested quite a bit in teaching for two reasons. First of all, it's some of the best marketing we can do. Mm -hmm. So there's a local community college that has a continuing education program in wine and spirits, and we teach all those classes here. Oh, wow. So we're bringing in people from all over Seattle and the Seattle area to take classes, and that's pretty important marketing for us. You know, their course catalog goes out to 30,000 households, and even if people don't come to the classes, they get to see a big one-page spread about what we're offering educationally. And I think there are a lot of bars around, and if you're gonna go out of your way to go to a bar, it needs to be more than a place to grab a bottle off a shelf and pour it in your glass. So what we're offering is something a little more than that where people can actually learn about what they're drinking and learn about something new and learn the history of it and learn where the industry is going. So I think the marketing is something that's important for our classes. And then it's also an investment in our customers because once customers are educated, they're willing to you know, try whiskeys and other products that they wouldn't otherwise try because they're intrigued about them. So you're even finding that if, they're, if they come in willing to learn about whiskey, they may then go on to learn about mezcal, for example? Mm -hmm. Or do you find people go from whiskey to wine, or is it more common to go from wine into whiskey? We've seen both. Uh, okay. I mean, we've had people who have come in here and they only drink one thing. They only drink wine. But then they see what else we have to offer. They maybe take a class. They get intrigued. And then next thing I know, they're halfway done with their whiskey passport. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it seems to be the case. And this has always been true of the Pacific Northwest. The food scene is really geeky and, and really passionate. If someone then comes in for a wine, they're passionate about that they can become passionate about whiskey. It seems to, to move right across the board. Right. One of the things that I always knew living here was that this was a very thirsty market, right. uh, a market that was willing to support and willing to learn, but very rarely supported in that. What do you find to be the main hurdles for somebody in the state of Washington who wants to learn or expand, or somebody like yourself who wants to run a very interesting whiskey program, but has hurdles to overcome. What, what mostly do you find there? I think, it, it, first, it depends where you are in the state of Washington. I think, you know, Seattle itself has a lot of fantastic whiskey bars, a lot of whiskey education opportunities, a lot of wonderful whiskey festivals, the Jubilee and others, that, uh, that, that are fantastic places. I mean, if you're into whiskey, there are no shortage of opportunities for you to drink it and mm -hmm. to learn about it and to, most importantly, to be a part of a community. You know, we host the Seattle Whiskey Collective here at the Barrel Thief. We have a monthly meetup where you know, around 50 people come together each month and we have a topic and we're just really focused on learning deeply about something, about doing a tasting, about learning. And it's not just that people are coming to learn about that, they're coming because they're in a room with a whole bunch of other people who have the you know they have that thirst not for just for whiskey but for learning, and they're people who can get together and really learn from each other. They can just express themselves as a community, and we really you know I, I started this place partly because I wanted to do something here in the community. Now, I've I've lived in the neighborhood here for about 20 years, 
And I wanted just to do something that was a community gathering and learning space. And little did I know it was going to turn into exactly what it did. But that's, that's the balance I face as a business owner where I have my vision and I have my goals. And then there's what the consumer wants. And I'm always trying to find that balance of where can we meet in the middle, where in order to survive as a business, you need to have things people want, but you also want to be pushing or pulling your audience along and learning from them as well. I mean, I, I may teach, but I've probably learned more than my customers in the last five years. And I think that's part of what makes this place different is that the staff may help customers make decisions and introduce them to new things, but I have a very curious staff. Mm -hmm. And if you're not curious, this is probably not a great place to work because this is a dynamic landscape here. So having curious, interested staff is just as important as having curious, interested customers. Well, and even yes. you and I met because yeah. your customers had said you have to go for single cast nation in your bar. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then you called me to tell me that and we had a conversation yeah. and, and we've hit it off ever since. Yeah. But that's, that's wonderful when it starts from the ground up. Right. Uh, and instead of you saying, oh, I like the single cast nation, I've got to get it to my customers now. Right. When they're saying, we're ready for this. Right. Please put it on your shelf so we can drink it. Right. That's tremendous. I mean, that's, Absolutely. Uh, and, and we've always said our our custom our, our members are really our best ambassadors. Right. And I would imagine the same is true for you. People right. who come to you know to learn at the Barrel Thief, to drink at the Barrel Thief, are then going out and telling friends all about that. Right. Um, it's funny when I hear you describe yourself as a business owner. Because anytime I come by here, or anytime you and I speak on the phone, you're in the middle of some project. Right. <laughs> could, could you quickly list some of the things you've done in the last maybe 18 months, two years with this space? Because you've transformed it in the time that I've been here. Right. But you've done it almost with your own two hands. Right. Which boggles my mind, given how busy you are. Um, so give us some of the things you've done. Yeah, I mean, just in terms of the space itself, uh, we've had to go through a transition in the last five and a half years from a cafe, which was all light and bright and windows and light colors and spacious, into an atmosphere that's a little more consonant with a whiskey lounge and more of a nighttime feel to it. And so part of what we've been doing around here is just getting a lot more uh, wood and coziness. We've built a vault for our whiskey so customers can buy a bottle and keep it here and come in and drink it. You know, I've put in a new bar top. I've been putting in a, a, a little party room in the back, a little event space with a lot of art made from barrel staves. We're putting in a new kitchen right now. I'm building a rolling ladder for our whiskey library. So part of it is, uh, it seems to be my hobby. So I, I, I like that kind of thing. Um, part of it is I can't really, I've never been able to throw hundreds of thousands of dollars at contractors to do these things, so I kind of have to or get to do it myself, but I'm pretty lucky that I'm probably one of the only whiskey bars with both a carpentry shop and a metalworking shop in the basement, so we're able to actually pull this off ourselves, and I think the space, the physical space, has grown and evolved organically along with the customers, the staff, the offerings, and just our whole vibe and aesthetic. So it's been kind of just been one big growing thing where we're learning from the environment as much as we're changing the environment. Well, and you now have half a wall that opens up to your street as well. Right. 
<laughs> yeah, so, I mean, we took out some win windows and a wall and put in some nice opening doors, and so we're trying to connect our little patio space with the dining room, and, you know, for me, that was both a physical change but also a conceptual change as we connect to the outside and connect to the street and the rest of the community. So the inevitable question now, and, and I think I ask you this question every time I see you, <laughs> every time I think you've reached the end of your projects list, you, you have plenty more coming, so what does the future hold for Barrel Thief? What, what remain your goals for this space or for the business at large? Yeah, I mean, for, for the space itself, it's uh, continuing to evolve our whiskey selection and our new kitchen is going in over the next several months. So that's just going to allow us to have a little bit more substantive food offerings. Um, I'm, I'm very pleased with it as it is now. That doesn't mean there are changes I'm not going to make. Of course I am. Um, you know, I, I think this is a learning, growing business, and that, that learning and that change manifests in a lot of ways from the physical to the, to the abstract. And for the business as a whole, I'm, I have a fantastic staff. We have a great selection. We have amazing customers. And I don't think we have major changes in the focus of the business at all. It's just we're always going to be dynamic, and the whole environment's going to change, and I always want to be one step ahead because customers are going to get to a space, and I want to have what's next for them, whether that's you know, our, our new focus on Mezcal, which we really started about a year ago. You know, we're going to start growing our Armagnac selection. Uh, just spent some time in Armagnac uh, a few months ago. Just fascinating to see kind of the the whiskey of brandy, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's kind of what it is. And, and part of that comes from my own interest. Part of that comes from customers being intrigued. And so, again, I, I'm listening as much as I'm speaking with these things, and I've learned a ton, both from the business itself and all the people who frequent it. And Scotch Sundays are going to remain? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> Sundays have always been tricky for us. It's a, it's, it was our quietest day of the week for a long time, for many years, and I tried a lot of different things to make Sundays work. We had everything from uh, music night to tango night to industry night. We really tried almost everything. And one day I sat down and I thought, in the last five or 10 years, where have I seen people line up in the rain to do something? And I thought I've seen beer events and scotch events where I've seen a line around the block to get into something in the pouring rain at 9 a.m. So people must really want that. And I thought, what's a compelling thing we can do with scotch on a Sunday? Because maybe that's not the most natural day to go out and drink a lot of scotch. You know, it's not Friday night. And I thought, if it's going to be compelling, it's going to have to be significant. So the idea of doing half-price scotch all Sunday was just, it, it was our latest uh, attempt to make Sundays work, and it's been very successful. We've been doing it since January 1 of this year. So we're now in the ninth month of doing it, and we have no plans to stop it. <laughs> and, and remarkably, you had said that there is no whiskey out of that order. There's, there's no whiskey out of bounds. And so someone could come in and get your Black Arts that's normally $50 a pour, yeah, sort of, thereabouts, yeah, yeah. and get that for $25. Yeah. That's insane and incredible and wonderful and, and yeah. I think shows your commitment right. to the people that come here um, who know the quality of that whiskey and know the value of that price. Right. That's remarkable. And so are you seeing a lot of your expensive stuff going on Sundays? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, 
my favorite part of all of that, first of all, we have a lot of new regulars. I mean, we get people who are here every single Sunday, which I really appreciate. But the other thing is we're moving through a lot more scotch, and that's actually let us expand our selection. So we have our eye on about another 30 or 40 scotches to add over the next couple of months. And so we're just we're constantly hunting for what's new and available in this market, um, which generally means independent bottlers. You know, you'll occasionally see a new distillery release available through a distributor, but almost always there are offerings from independent bottlers that we can pick up quite a few of, and that's let us dramatically increase our selection, not just in terms of quantity, I mean, that's nice, but also just the diversity of what's in the bottle, you know, whether that's a different distillery, different age, different expression or finish, and just seeing scotch expand like it has has been fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One final question here. Um, part of your aesthetic is TV free right. and one of the things for me in searching out bar spaces to go and, and hang out in is looking for TV free mm-hmm. given the type of customer base that you have I, I can't imagine there's a lot of people walking here asking you where your TVs are but what was it that, that led you to avoid the TV even that ubiquitous TV over the back bar that's on mute while music plays in a venue. I just don't understand it. And uh, But it seems to be some bars, venues will give in to some demand to have a flashing box in a corner. Um, you stand strong not doing that. Um, what was the impetus for that and, and what allowed you to remain strong in it? Yeah, I think part of it was just the aesthetic. It's just we have a really, what I think is a nice, calm aesthetic where people can really focus on their whiskey, the person in front of them, without having something big lit up flashing behind them. Um, When we started, we've never had televisions, but we had a projector where we would show occasional sporting events because when we were new, we had to do everything we could to get every customer in here, no matter what that was and no matter what my personal aesthetic was. Mm. And um, nothing against bars with televisions, there's a place for that. And there are times where there'll be a sporting event or something else on TV, and I know we lose a few customers to that, and that's fine, and I'm glad they can find a place they can watch something like that. But I think we're fortunate to be at a place where we can just maintain our aesthetic as is, and in the long term, that's what we want. We want a very consistent aesthetic that people understand, and we want people to, when they think of the, the barrel thief, they don't have to think, do they have their TV on today or not? They know what we have, we know what we have, Sometimes people will go watch the Seahawks on Sunday at a different bar, and sometimes they'll come here and drink scotch. Uh-huh. And that's part of the diversity of the customer experience. And I think you know, there's enough to look around here at all the whiskey and all the, the people that you don't need another thing to look at. Always great to hear Christopher's voice. And you know, it's interesting. The conversation that you had with him is not necessarily the type of conversation I've ever had with him. So it was nice to hear him talk about that transition from cafe to bar. And I knew that he was a tea guy, but I didn't know that he did tea classes. <laughs> I know, right? You know, and, and I love that he, you know, he kind of waits around for people, you know, wine people that want to dabble in whiskey and then they join one of his classes and then... You know, so so I like this. He's he's there to educate. He offers you know the, the the venue for people to learn more, which which I think is great. And one part 
of the conversation shocked me. Oh, gosh. Well, he's got the Scotch Sundays. Uh, I was going to bring that back up again, <laughs> get your thoughts on that. <laughs> First off, I love the fact that he's found a way to bring in people into his bar on a, on a day or evening that's usually dead. Yep. However, you know, just being a business owner and knowing the the margins that we have to make to stay alive, to grow, to do all of this, uh, you know, it makes me so nervous <laughs> for him that he's he cuts his prices in half. Granted, he knows his business. He knows what he's doing. But when I, I hear... I, and I kind of tiptoed around that while yeah. speaking to him. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, when I hear, you know, he's got Brooklady Black Arts, normally $50 a pour, and, and you could just wait a few days and get it for $25 a pour. I'm thinking, oh, you know, what are, what, what are you doing here? But, you know, I think in the end, it's one of those things. It's, it's the long game, right? It's establishing people who want to come in there on days that aren't Sundays. And, and I, and I yeah. think that's, that's an aspect to remember as a business owner. There are people who simply cannot get there on a Sunday. Mm. Their their night is a Thursday or a Friday or or something else. Yeah, and and you're not cutting yourself off at your knees because they're still drinking on the night that they're able to drink. What you are doing is adding in a day mm. for people to come and drink as well. Uh, sure, you know he also talks about the passport, the whiskey passport. And, you know, there's another reason, uh, a way to go through somebody's back bar. The speed at which he's going through the whiskeys that he's bringing in is remarkable. And, and the way he talked in the interview there about even selling through a bottle and a half before it had even hit the menu. It's amazing. And that yeah. speaks, and I know Mike does this, and I know Aaron does this, and I know many of the people we'll speak to in the future do this. Educating your bar staff on what's on your shelves is paramount. Every new bottle that comes into a bar gets opened and there's a pour for the staff. Get a sense of what's in this mm. bottle so that when somebody comes in and asks you about it, you will know the answer. You will have something to say. Yeah. And I think, as we talked earlier, that's part of building the trust. That's not just an influencer who's got a bottle who wants you to buy it. That's somebody who's tasted a bottle and knows that it will fit your palate. That's something you and I talked about way back in the blogging days mm. of a readership should get to know somebody's palate. If you're reading somebody, get to know their palate. Even if it's a Jim Murray, you know, whoever, you know, a Dave Broom, whoever you're reading, get to know their palate. And if your palate fits with theirs, you'll get great recommendations. Oh, yeah. If your palate doesn't fit with theirs, you'll be wondering what the hell all the fuss is about. So getting <laughs> to know your bar staff, getting to know who you do trust yeah. in there with a recommendation yeah. is huge. Absolutely huge. Yeah. And for bars like Barrel Thief, Delilah's, Fountainhead, Jack Rose, you know, all of these, Seven Grand, you name it. Can you imagine going to these whiskey bars? Now, these are whiskey bars. And you have a bartender there that doesn't know what's on his or her shelf. 
Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. that that would be severely upsetting. There's a difference between these bars and just going to any restaurant or any bar that may have a, a bit of a selection of whiskey. They don't need to know what's on their shelves, really, yeah. because yeah. they're not a specialist bar. Yeah, there's there's a Laphroaig, there's a Johnny, there's a McCallum, there's a Glenlivet, there's a Glenfiddich, there's a Glenmorangie. You know, those... You know, people who who want to drink something at a restaurant mm-hmm. know exactly what they're asking for. Yes. And it, it is interesting in hearing some stories and being told, no, we don't have that precise one. Why don't you try this one being told, no, this is what I drink? It, it all harks back to our, our Mark what, right? The, the loyalty that exists amongst people who know their you know know their brand yeah you know, this is my brand. brand i'm a johnny drinker mm-hmm. nope don't offer me something related to johnny give me johnny mm-hmm. oh i'm a mccallan drinker nope don't give me something related to mccallan give me mccallan whereas independent bottling levels you hear about the number of independent bottlers grombeck has an interest in mike miller mm. aaron zacharias mm-hmm. right they're they're on an independent bottling level and that's the fans that they get coming in are those who are saying, well, I want to try that today and I want to try that later and that tomorrow and this next week and do you have that one coming in? They're bouncing all over the place. The idea of the passport that Grombeck's talking about, you're bouncing all over. You're going from brand to brand, distillery to distillery. There's not that same singular Mm. loyalty. Mm -hmm. And I think that speaks to what you're saying here is if you're staffing a bar in a restaurant, just pour the Macallan. Put it over a couple of bits of ice. Get it out to the consumer. <laughs> right? You don't yeah. need to take them on a journey. You don't need to tell them more about what's on your shelf. So it's a, v- a very different realm there. Yeah. So we have a misconception from Christopher. I know we you do. like to just call him Grunbeck as if he's, I do. As if he's like Cher or uh, Madonna. He'll always be Madonna to me. <laughs> It's the fingerless gloves he wears. <laughs> Ooh, I, do, I, it, he's not wearing cones, like like brazier <laughs> cones. <laughs> Sorry, Grombeck. Just to be clear, Grombeck does not wear fingerless gloves around the bar. Just to be clear. And they certainly don't reach his elbows, and they're certainly not made of lace. So there you go. And they're definitely not black. So Yeah. So listen, we really don't have much news to report Unless you can think of anything. But there is an email that I wanted to get to. I would just very quickly... We don't even need to wake up the paper boy for this one. I would mm-hmm. just very quickly add that we are still pressing ahead with... Labels have now been approved. Mm-hmm. Labels are now being printed. We're fighting tooth and nail to get into bottling schedules, uh, which are all now starting to tighten up because other people's labels are being approved and other people's labels are being printed. (laughs) Uh, It's like we saw this coming. Uh Um, But we we have a fair amount of whiskey, both American and Scotch, being bottled very soon. Mm -hmm. And, And even better than that, being released very soon. Yeah. Um, our good friend James Foster reached out to us and said, have you guys thought about putting a banner on your website to let people know that new whiskeys are coming? In the last episode, we talked about the frustration of being sold out of everything. And uh, he, was, he was making a suggestion. Why don't you let people know what's coming? It was like, yeah, we're so busy trying to 
get it in, get it bottled, get it in, we kind of forgot about the information part mm-hmm. for people stumbling upon the website. So I guess we need to do that, don't we? Yeah, it's a smart idea. So thanks to Foster for that and, and keeping it to the front of our brains. Um, so yeah, so that, that's my news. Things continue to move. Uh, we continue to be very busy behind the scenes and continue to watch this space. There will be a deluge of whiskey coming very, very soon. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. So with that said, Joshua, and, and again, we let the paper boy sleep. What's in an email? Okay. So hold on a second. I shall not hold on a second, sir. We have gotten multiple emails and some some Facebook comments and Facebook posts of people saying, you asked us if we wanted young whiskey. Oh, yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. please. Good. We want to drink young whiskey. If you guys say it's good, we want to trust you. Awesome. Oh, look at that. My goodness. Theme of the episode. Trust. Trust? Yeah, I, I'm glad you said that because I was thinking, theme of the episode, where everybody knows your name. Well, and I think that's surely part of trust. <laughs> so Paul Marco is is one of the people, including... James Foster and Philippe Fanavong and um, I think even Andrew Friedman may have mentioned that somewhere. Could be wrong. Um, so I don't mean to put words in his mouth. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I know where Scott Harris of Catoctin Creek Distilling Company stands on the issue. So. Yes. Oh, look at you hinting. Had the pleasure of his company a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> so we got a message from Paul Marco. Now, I wanted to stick with the other theme of this episode where it is conversations that started in late 2018. Oh, good. Yeah, this has been a good theme of this episode. (laughs) And so Paul's um, message just came in in October 2018. Terrific. And we just never approached it. So We didn't even use it in a mailbag. Good grief. I know. I know. We're terrible people. Apologies, Paul. So Paul's email says, J&J, thanks for this week's episode of One Nation Under Whiskey. It was an interesting discussion regarding international definitions of whiskey. And if I remember correctly, I think that was the Sam Simmons episode where we were talking about Japanese rice whiskey, where in Japan they can't call it whiskey, but in the U.S. because our laws... Are, are different and in some ways a bit tighter, in some ways a bit looser. Our laws allow for a rice-based distillate to be called whiskey here in the U.S. So I think that's what he's referring to. And I think there was some conversation around Canadian whiskey as well with Sam Simmons. I'm so... Being the Canadian. Does this tie into the email it, that you're about to read it, to me? It okay, ties in on. perfectly. Oh, <laughs> I set him up. You knock him down. Look he at says, that. Completely says, without a safety net. <laughs> He says, but more importantly, the episode left me wondering when Single Cask Nation will snag a single cask of Canadian whiskey. Mm, Yep, that's a good question. Uh, Or maybe that's happened already and I just missed it. Cheers, Paul. No, no, no. It's a solid question. He has definitely not missed it. We just haven't quite made the right relationship yet. Obviously, there's all that Alberta rye floating around. 
that makes its way into some very pricey American releases. Mm-hmm. I'd be happy with some pricey single cast nation releases. Or maybe not so pricey. You know, six and two threes. <laughs> <laughs> you well, bottle them, I make the money. However it works, you know. Well, I'm happy to announce here and to Jason that uh, I was in Chicago last week for the Binnie's Whiskies of the World event. And I met a broker of Canadian whiskey. Get out of town. I will not get out of town, sir. I cannot believe I'm learning about this <laughs> live on the podcast. <laughs> Were you keeping that up your sleeve just for this episode? Listen, I got <laughs> I got home Friday, and the last thing I wanted to do was think about or talk about whiskey. Yeah, we haven't uh, talked all weekend, weekend long. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's oh, that's terrific news. Yeah, cool. yeah. So uh, watch you, this space. I, I love the fact you even retroactively got Paul Marco to send an email last October that would allow you to bring in this piece of news to me right now. How else am I going to do it, Jason? How, how else? <laughs> Thank goodness we know somebody with a DeLorean <laughs> who's not afraid to get it up to 88 miles an hour. What, 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 <laughs> they found me. Yeah. I don't know how they found me, but they found me. Run for a Marty. <laughs> Dr. Paul Marco Brown over there, <laughs> retroactively <laughs> sending an email. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, terrific. There you go. Watch this space. We will have Canadian whiskey coming. Uh-huh. So, uh, so that's, I, that, that touches, um, <sighs> that touches a bit of news and it, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it answers a question. Oh boy! Okay. And and listen, we we got one other question that I, that I don't really feel like touching on because did it come in in November? <laughs> well, no, it, it came in in February. But before we answer it, I want to get some clear and definitive answers from the producers themselves, who may or may not be willing to divulge. And oh, interesting. This um, this is some top notch hinting. Well, this is yeah. this is delicious. Yeah, uh, the question regards a very well known thing in the industry, and but it's one of these things that people just yes, thing, a thing, a thing in the industry. It's something that people always talk about on the DL, but Ooh. it's made its way to consumers' Ooh. knowledge base. However, I do not want to make any false claims, oh and boy. I would like for this information to dude, come naturally. Dude, this is season three. Why are we not doing it now? <laughs> <laughs> is this a resolution we made for series three, season three? Oh, look yes. at that. The uh, No more false claims. The Scott and you just came out. You called it series three. That's, you know, I'm used yeah. to talking to you and having to speak American. <laughs> <laughs> so uh so anyway that's all I'm going to say about that one. Okay, yeah, let's hit the pause. Let's let's put a pin in that. Oh, I like that. Put a pin in it. Okay. Well, I think Joshua that mm-hmm. we have covered all the things that we came to cover. Mhm. I think we are able to give the floor back to Christopher Grombeck of Barrel yes. Thief yep. in Fremont, Seattle mm-hmm. for the misconception. And I think you and I can get out of here. Uh, We are recording this episode very, very early in April. 
we will then have a whole bunch of travel going on between the two of us until we meet again for our next recording. So mm. I hope you have traveled safe by the time this episode drops. And I, Jason, hope the very same for you. Thank you, sir. I will see you in Scotland. Yes, you will. And we will report a bit of news in our next recording from what we're doing in Scotland and why we were in that country for the second time already this year, right? Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. With the third time right on the horizon. (laughs) I'll have five this, this, this whole year. Anyway. Cheers, homie. Cheers. And thank you, dear listeners. And thank you to Aaron Zacharias, Mike Miller, Christopher Grombeck for their time. Hope you enjoyed the bar episode. Here's Christopher again. We're out. Cheers. Cheers. Given that you teach classes, given that you run a bar, uh, what's kind of the, the misconception that... Oh, <laughs> you, you can take time to think about this. Yeah. Um, there are so many. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and honestly, the misconceptions are things that every single one of us has had mm-hmm. because we've all gone gone through this path you know we all grew up thinking i mean everything you said is true darker is better darker is older um we we think that uh a whiskey that's older is better than a whiskey that is younger mm-hmm. and part of what we try and do is take all those misconceptions and we try you can't just go to someone and say that's wrong this is what's right and you can't do that verbally you actually have to do it as a full body experience. Mm-hmm. You have to give someone something to taste and not tell them what it is, have them try it, talk about it, and then tell them what just happened. Mm-hmm. That's the only way it's a visceral enough experience to make a difference in their consciousness. So for us, to, we do a lot of blind tastings. You know, when we do our whiskey collective, when we do our classes, the more that we can do blind to take those misconceptions out, let people have an experience, then they can choose whether or not to learn from that experience. So, you know, I mean, taking the age of the whiskey, especially with American whiskey, older is not necessarily better. You're talking in a lot of cases about new oak, and there is a point at which too much oak is too much oak. Yeah. Uh, with with scotch and other single malts, there are some fantastic younger whiskeys. We have a 80 rat ray bottled Isle of Aaron five year that is fantastic. But who's going to pick a five-year out on a menu? They're going to say, that's five years old. Only five years old is what they'll say. We have some three-year Japanese whiskeys where if I didn't tell you it was three years old, you might guess it's 18. Mm. And so there's some correlation with the age of a whiskey and what you're going to understand your experience to be, but there are enough outliers that you just can't let yourself be constrained by those relationships mm, nice. and you just you just you have to have an open mind when it comes to whiskey and so the the more we can just give people taste of things without telling them what it is the more learning opportunity there is mm-hmm.